Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Can changing our consciousness hold off the climate apocalypse? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. On today's program, we explore the climate within our souls. Can we find meaning in these precarious times? This, I think, is the, the silver lining in, in all this darkness. Remember, the word apocalypse also means revelation. So uh, we're in an apocalyptic time, but we all uh, realize the breakthrough is there, too. Matthew Fox is an internationally acclaimed priest, theologian, activist, and author. His latest work is Order of the Sacred Earth, a vision of intergenerational love and action, which he co-wrote. Greg's other guest today is Roy Scranton, author of War Porn, Learning to Die in the Anthropocene, and his latest, We're Doomed, Now What? Despite the pessimistic title, Scranton does see a glimmer of light in the darkness. If I had hope, like this is where it would be in the capacity for human self-reinvention, the capacity for human adaptation, the capacity for giving our lives meaning and changing what that meaning is even in the worst circumstances. Here's our conversation about climate change, spirituality, and the human condition. Roy Scranton, you write that you were a kid who loved to read, you cried at the slightest provocation, and then you, after 9-11, you joined the army to go to war and be a man. And you write that in 2003, in the brutal, warm days of Iraq, quote, were some of the sweetest and purest days of your life. Each moment gleamed with transcendent splendor. So tell us how a sensitive kid ends up in Iraq high on war. I'm glad you started with the light stuff. Um, <laughs> Get right to it. So uh, there were a lot of reasons, uh, uh, a lot of factors that went into my decision to, to join the military. I, I was a, a working class uh, kid, uh, grew up in a military family, um, and a first generation college student for a variety of reasons. That didn't work out uh, at first, and I wound up with a lot of student debt uh, and uh, just working and uh, well, always with the idea that I was uh, transforming myself into some kind of writer or something, mm-hmm. that that's what I would do. Um, and then September 11th happened. <laughs> um, 
you know, events on, on very different scales, but that sent me back home uh, where I realized that things were sort of at an impasse. And so a way out seemed to be through joining the military. Uh, I had the college money. Um, I'd be able to understand how our world was changing, which was a, a big, something I thought about and struggled with a lot um, after 9-11. You know, what, what does this mean? What's changed? Yeah, and you know, the, the part you mentioned about the, the emotions of being in that kind of uh, dangerous place, um, mm. those are difficult often still sometimes to reflect on and reckon with. Uh, it's a range of uh, very intense very intense emotions. Uh, yeah, uh, and I tried thinking about it and writing about it to really <coughs> be honest about those and be true to how it felt and not let it sort of fold into some other kind of more, you know, e easily swallowed story about how it wasn't. And you write that you, uh, you know, samurais meditate on death. You write, tell us about how you would meditate every morning uh, when you were in Iraq. Yeah, so this is one of those uncomfortable feelings was I was afraid. Uh, I was really scared. Uh, we were running missions uh, all over Baghdad, picking up old Iraqi munitions. Um, and stuff was blowing up. Um, IEDs were just getting going. There were occasional, uh, occasional ambushes and, and things like that. And so I was terrified. I drove the lead vehicle in the convoy because I was the battery commander's driver. So it was on me. Like I was, I was among the people responsible not only for leading the convoy, but for spotting any IEDs on the road. And if they didn't hit us, they, they would hit the people behind, behind us. And so, you know, I felt that felt like a, a burden that I had a lot of trouble bearing, right? Because it was, uh, it was scary. Uh, I would be very anxious, uh, very, very tense driving around to the point where I felt like it was, it was starting to impact my ability to do my job, right? Uh, I was just... Uh, out on the road, like I was really stressed out. Um, and so I started meditating. I started imagining my own death uh, and all those possibilities uh, and recognizing that that's just, not just imagining it, but accepting it as true, right? That I was going to go out that day and I was going to get blown up or I was going to get shot or, you know, you just, you could go down a list. I, um, I'd accidentally get run over by a tank. Or there's just a lot of ways to die in a place where people are shooting each other all the time. And then I would tell myself, okay, that's done. Now what? Now what do mm -hmm. I do? Like, what do I do moment to moment to do my job, to get these people back, um, to try to be an ethical person, accepting that, like, it's all over today? Uh, Matthew Fox in 1988 you wrote a letter to then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger and the whole church calling the Catholic Church a dysfunctional family. What happened after that? How did that go? <laughs> <laughs> well, they kind of proved my point. Um, <laughs> they came after me. They silenced me for a year. And um, then eventually they kicked me out of the Dominican Order, which I'd been a member for 34 years. Uh, it wasn't just that letter, it was also my book called The Original Blessing, mm -hmm. which uh, I learned from that, the response to that, that the Vatican at that time really has an investment in original sin, really, big time. 
And um, even though I proved in my book and other theologians have spoken about since, it's not in the Bible. No Jews ever believed in original sin and Jesus was a Jew. So what's this thing called original sin? We started in the 4th century with Augustine, St. Augustine. And of course, the 4th century um, also is a century the church inherited the empire. So you're going to run an empire, original sin is a great idea. It gets everyone in a pretzel about whether they have a right to be here and whether they're beautiful or not, etc. And um, I also think, frankly, that capitalism, consumer capitalism, is built on an ideology of original sin. Because saying you don't have what it takes. You've got, you got to buy something, some kind of external savior that you don't have what it takes. But the truth is, I mean, look at the universe. 13.8 billion years it's been operating. We've come along very late. It's now, we now know it's, what, two trillion galaxies big, each galaxy having hundreds of billions of stars. I mean, it's an amazing being that's been going on for all this time. We've been invited aboard. It's an original blessing. It's a blessing. Blessing is a theological word for goodness. And, um, and all, any parent knows their child is a blessing. And uh, all kind of, every being is a blessing. There's goodness in, in all things. So, um, you know, the Vatican got it wrong, that's all. But uh, <laughs> I've moved on. And you moved on to creation spirituality, which draws from Buddhism, Judaism, and Native American spirituality. So give us a thumb shot of what creation spirituality is. Well, science too, of course, because the scientist's job to tell us what creation's about, how nature operates and what it's about. So um, this is the oldest tradition, actually, in the Bible. The J source in Genesis is, is creation-centered. And the wisdom tradition is all about spirituality is by finding God in nature not just in a book, but in nature. That was Jesus' tradition. All scholars today agree the historical Jesus comes from the wisdom tradition of Israel. So uh, this is a tradition of native peoples everywhere, of our earliest ancestors, because uh, as Teilhard de Chardin said, you know, our first ancestors, when they saw the frost, when they saw the oceans, and they, were, they were struck with awe and wonder, and that is the the origin of a mystical experience. That's the beginning of authentic religion. And we need to, um, you know, gin that up again at this time because, of course, we're facing, we're facing the extinction of, our, of so many species and of our planet as we know it and, um, and of ourselves that we've really got to, um, you know, start over again and with a different consciousness, as you, as you mentioned, a consciousness that doesn't take our existence for granted, the air, the ozone, the soil, the forest, the water, the beautiful species, and even ourselves. We just can't afford this kind of, um, of um, frolicking in despair and pessimism, which, which is a big part of patriarchy, really. I, I think that patriarchy, by definition, is pessimistic. And Augustine was, was very, very patriarchal. He's the one who said, man, but not woman, is made in the image and likeness of God. So that's a pretty bad start. Uh, if you're looking for gender balance in your life. <laughs> <laughs> or a spouse. My awakening to climate happened in the Arctic. Uh, Matthew, what are, you, know, you say that the awakening can happen through darkness or through light. Uh, Edgar Mitchell was a, an astronaut who returned from walking on the moon and had what he described an overwhelming sense of universal connectedness. <clears throat> Well, all those examples are, are so wonderful. I grew up in Wisconsin, and um, Wisconsin, 
first of all, it has a lot of the morphic resonance, a memory of the Native American uh, people on the land there. I had Native American dreams when I was young. And um, uh, the seasons, and I lived in Madison, the, the four seasons were very strong back then before climate change hit us so hard. But just th there is so much magic and there is so much beauty in being close to nature there in Wisconsin. And that just fed my soul as a child. And I realized how, what should I say, how important it was to me. And when the creation spiritual tradition was named for me by my mentor, Pierre Chenu, a brilliant uh, French Dominican and, uh, with whom I studied in Paris, it, it, just, it just made so much sense to me that, yes, you begin with original blessing. You begin with creation, which, which is given to us. We, we arrive in this beautiful earth. And, uh, of course, there's troubles, that most of which humans have made. So it's not easy, but nevertheless, we're here, and it's marvelous. And uh, that's really the origin of my... Um, optimism, if you will, of my experience of joy. Now, the darkness, too, and the, the apocalypse, which, um, which Rory writes about very um, convincingly, um, because he gathers the facts. I mean, that's what I like about his work, is that he's, he's giving us facts. You know, there, there's a, a professor at, uh, of science at Stanford, a very wise guy. He said to me one day, you know, we're the first species in four and a half billion years of the planet that can choose not to go extinct. But of course, he said, we haven't made that choice yet. <laughs> well, time's running out to make that choice. Time's running out to make that choice. And you know, the other species, my dog, the whales, the trees, you know, they're doing their thing. They're, they're being real dogs and real trees and real whales. But we humans, we're still flopping around, building more bombs to destroy things more efficiently, and, and going about our business in a, in a suicidal way. But the point is that the mystics talk about the God of light, cataphagdivity, and the God of darkness. And that darkness, a dark night of the soul, which we're all in, I call it the dark night of our species today, is in fact a very special place to be because it's in the dark night that this consciousness that you talk about gets, gets opened up. Um, and, um, and, and good things can happen uh, in, in this darkness. Think about these 12 boys in, in Thailand. They were literally in darkness for, what, 14 days. They didn't know what time of the day it was or a week it was. But um, they didn't give up. Like you, they learned to meditate. And meditation takes you into that place of depth where you're at home with the darkness. Meister Eckhart says, the, the ground of the soul is dark. So if we're going to get deep again and not just live at the superficial level of, of, uh, that our culture wants us to live at, we are going to have to go into the dark. And so this, the darkness we're in is an invitation to go deeper, to go deeper. And when I talked, I've talked to a couple astronauts, and they've all had mystical experiences, and cosmonauts. They all have these mystical experiences up there, and they say two things triggered, the darkness and the silence of space. Then they look back at Earth, and Earth is lit up. And, and then you see the, 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 the gem of a, of a lit Earth against the darkness of space, and it, it unleashes uh, capacities of awareness and gratitude and um, you know, energy, therefore, to do something about the, the troubles we're in. So, Roy, did your 
awakening come through the darkness of Iraq? And I'd also like to hear you about when you mm -hmm. came, became conscious of the, the real depth and urgency of climate. Right. So it wasn't through Iraq that I came to understand uh, the seriousness of our situation with climate change. And in fact, before going into the military uh, in the sort of wandering years, uh, um, I was a, it was a pretty active uh, activist and protester uh, for environmental issues and, and social justice issues as well. But it, during my time in the army and then afterward, uh, going back to school, uh, those concerns of which climate change was, was preeminent sort of faded into the background. I was thinking about American militarism and I was thinking about oil and I was thinking about uh, the veteran experience and understanding how humans make meaning through war. Uh, and I didn't really start thinking about climate change again until I got the chance uh, somewhere along the way, right, uh, um, to go to this uh, course at Cornell, the summer course uh, on the Anthropocene, right? I didn't know what it was uh, and it was curious to me and so I, I uh, signed up for that, you know, and and for years I thought, yeah, climate change, it's real, right? It's important, but like it's something that'll happen in the future. It's like distant. It's just this yeah. this you know hazy thing, and and it's it's a long ways off. And then that summer, prepping for that course, right? I read the IPCC reports, I read the World Bank reports, and read uh, David Archer's book, and and all this all this stuff, uh, and got caught up and and realized that. The extreme, like that we're doomed. Right? It's really, this is all done because it's going to get too hot, and second-order effects that we all know about: rising seas, uh, changes in, uh, f you know, wildlife distribution uh, patterns, food availability, uh, things like drought, uh, fires. It's on and, and wars, on and on and on and on, um, are going to so stress what is already a stressed and perhaps exceedingly complex right, system, and it's going to crash, right? And then, and then things are going to keep getting hotter because <laughs> there's already so much CO2 in the, in the atmosphere. And so you wrote a book called Learning to Die in the Anthropocene. Right. So that book came out of that, uh, eventually sort of came out of trying to, this really, um, it was really hard to, to deal with. Um, so learning how to live on a sinking ship, and then yeah. you come through the other side somewhere to say to the acceptance of that and say, okay. It's not really, it's not, I don't feel like I came through any other side. Uh, <laughs> the situation, we're still on the sinking ship. Uh, and and it, you know, it gets a little bit more, the imagery gets a little more lurid every other day, it <laughs> seems like. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about finding hope in hopeless times. Coming up, it might take a little effort. Hope is a verb with the sleeves rolled up. So it's about going to work, but going to work out of a deep place, out of a concerted effort to change our ways as a species. We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about climate change awareness with his guests, authors Matthew Fox and Roy Scranton. When we left off, Scranton was describing our situation as a sinking ship. Let's hear a response from Matthew Fox. Matthew, do you share that? Do you think that we're doomed? <laughs> no, I would never count our species out. Um, 
I don't think we're doomed. I think the facts would suggest that. But uh, the facts suggested that these 12 boys and their coach wouldn't get out of the, out of the cave alive, too. Um, we humans are capable of surprising ourselves immensely. And I think that's where your word is, is so important that you began the evening with, about consciousness, about waking up. I think there's a real danger in, in wallowing in despair. Uh, Thomas Aquinas says, despair is the most dangerous of all sins. Injustice is the worst of sins, but despair is the most dangerous because uh, people who are in despair, he says, don't care about themselves and they sure don't care about others. So the energy isn't there. So what do we do to, to kick the energy to get the creativity going? And I don't mean just technological gadgets, although obviously technology can help, but I mean what you're talking about, the consciousness, so that we, we do change our ways of doing politics, economics, religion, education, and all the things that are destroying the planet at this time. And um, uh, th- that, I think, is the key. Uh, David Orr defines hope as... Um, Hope is a verb with the sleeves rolled up. Hope is a verb with the sleeves rolled up. So it's about going to work, but going to work out of a deep place, not just out of action, reaction, or out of being Bambi in the headlights, but out of a a concerted effort to change our ways as a species. And we've had to do this in the past before. One of my favorite stories is from Brian Swim, the cosmologist, says when humans left Africa about 65,000 years ago, um, we invented fire, we f- uh, discovered fire. So there we go, we, we go out, and when we landed in what's now Eurasia, um, the Ice Age hit. And for 10,000 years, it was this Ice Age. Now, I'm sure for the first 1,000 years, people were t- screaming at each other, who turned the light off, the heat off, you know? But meanwhile, we had a hustle, and these are our ancestors. They had a hustle, and they had no playbook about it. But they did hustle. They learned how to... S- kill and skin a woolly mammoth and how to live in caves and tell stories and, and, and stare the way of the, of the tigers and all the rest. I mean, they got through it. These are our ancestors. So I think despair is a, is, a, is, a, is a luxury we can't afford today. I think we've got to gin up the, the love of life, uh, the love of our, our children, not yet born even, and, and change what has to be changed. And, and yes, we can put into gear our creativity, our technological creativity, but the real problem, the r- real reason we're raping the earth is a spiritual problem. That w- for centuries we felt we're, we're the only man on the block, and I use the word man advisedly. And, um, you know, w- we've been playing this Hebrews game for so long, what Pope Francis has rightly called narcissism of our species, that we've got to learn, and this is a hard way to learn, but we've got to learn real fast, that we're, just, we're part of a web of creation in the universe, and we've got to be good citizens uh, in, in um, communion with and, and recognition of all the other species that are also struggling to survive. And can we do this? Of course we can do it. Every religious tradition talks about, well, the gospel is about metanoia, change of consciousness. But Buddha talks about it too. Every tradition does that, that we can change our ways. We can undergo a conversion. And, um, and this, I think, is the, the, the silver lining in, in all this darkness. There's an invitation. Remember the word apocalypse also means revelation. So uh, we're in an apocalyptic time, and Rory writes about it wonderfully. But we also realize the breakthrough is there too. 
that um, uh, we can change if we, if we get out of denial. And that's where Roy's work, I think, is so important. He cuts through the denial. And that's what's really ruling the roost today in, in politics and the media. And uh, my record says, God is the denial of denial. So if we cannot deny denial, then truth is nowhere in the room and therefore divinity is nowhere in the room. So we've got to be able to deny denial and, and then face nakedly the, um, the future that, that Rory is, is writing about and others. Um, are we up to it? Of course we're up to it or we, we wouldn't even be here. But are, are, are we so addicted to our way of life and enter our way of not thinking, I don't want to call our way of thinking, but not thinking, that, um, that we, uh, we, we want to die and, and commit suicide together. Um, I think that's, that kind of extinction attraction is, um, is kind of floating around these days. I think uh, it's one reason so many movies, uh, you know, are all about things blowing up, you know, and all the and all the vampires coming at us and everything. I mean, it's an attraction, especially to young people, because they feel they, they don't have the words for it. They feel this apocalypse that is real uh, on paper. But uh, yeah, we need a, a spiritual explosion, and we have to call from every tradition that humans have ever devised that are still alive, every religious tradition has to contribute and quit fighting each other. And, and if there's going to be a contest, let it be a contest about wisdom and compassion and not about conversion or anything else. Wow. <laughs> Royce Granton, does that make you feel any better? <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot uh, to say, I think, about about these things, and, and I agree with a lot of uh, a lot of what you said, Matthew. Um, but I think despair's I think despair's scary. I think death is scary. I think illness is scary. Poverty is scary. I think war is scary. I think where the world is going is scary. Uh, I think it's a real thing, and I I don't believe in Necessarily, I don't believe in the human capacity for endless reinvention. I believe we're animals, we're limited, we are incredible, we are adaptive, just like you're saying, in, 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 in ways that really are astounding, that boggle the mind. Um, but we're also, you know, we're, we're a biological species uh, adapted to a certain ecological range. And it could all go away, right? that range, that, that, that environmental range that sustains us. Uh, um, ice ages, yes. The Holocene, yes. But it could get even, it could go beyond the range at which human life can, can live, much less thrive, right? And that's a real possibility, especially if we, I mean, that's an extreme end of things, but that's a very possible extreme end of things. The question we face, I don't think, is whether we can fix it or whether we can stop global warming. I think, looking at the, the scientific evidence, we're, we're over the, you know, the turning point, where things have, feedback mechanisms have begun, right, that are, that are gonna have their own inertia, no matter what we do at this point. So a certain amount of warming now is pretty much inevitable. A certain amount of change, uh, possibly, 
I mean, almost certainly the transformation of this global civilization we live in that's fueled by oil, primarily, right? Certainly a transformation of that. But what kind of transformation, I think, is something we still have a little. This is where, I guess, I, I'm hesitant ever to use the word hope because it sounds so much like hype. But yeah. uh, <laughs> this is where, if I had hope, like this is where it would be in the capacity for human self-reinvention, the capacity for human adaptation, the capacity for giving our lives meaning and changing what that meaning is, right? Even in the worst circumstances, even in the most desperate straits, right? And perhaps we can make this transition with a little less suffering than it would have been otherwise. Perhaps we can save some things. Perhaps we can do some healing on the way. Matthew, a lot of people spend a lot of our time you know, avoiding the, the pain and reality that Roy just talked about, whether we buy things, we eat things, we do things, we distract ourselves. Um, you know, tell us how you, know, you can kind of come in touch with that. And you say that, that activists need to cultivate an inner life, because a lot of the activists I know are so concerned trying to address the things that Roy just outlined. Mm that they're running around with their hair on fire and working, operating at a certain <coughs> level, often anxiety-driven, and they think they're solving, making some progress. I'm not so sure. Mm. So tell us how activists need to cultivate an inner life to get at the things that, that Roy discussed. Well, I think Roy's original story about being in Iraq and realizing that he had to meditate on death and kind of go there mm -hmm. and taste it uh, is a really important story. And because that's where we are as a species today. And I would also add, we're in the throes of the death of democracy. Uh, I don't want to leave that out of the picture. <laughs> I think that's a daily, <laughs> daily food as well. So um, again, though, we are capable of that as a species, meditating on darkness, emptying the mind and, and emptying projection, emptying thoughts of hope or thoughts of extinction and just being with being. And um, I think that we have to come to a point where we calm that reptilian brain, which is, of course, our dominant brain. It's 420 million years old in all of us. Um, the reptilian brain wants to, wants to be number one, so it wants to lash out and fight, action, reaction. But we want to calm the reptilian brain, and meditation does that. And then you're able to go deeper into reality and let the reality speak to you. And, um, you know, I also want to say, and, and this may be an unusual place to say it, but we're not alone in the universe. Um, now, I'm not talking about intelligent life on other planets, which may or may not be there, but I'm talking about spirits. There's no human tribe that doesn't have angels and spirits in their stories. And um, we have to call on the angels today. We have to call on all the help we can get and the ancestors. And um, I think that it's, it's real. I, I wandered across the street before our meeting here and saw this statue of Gandhi. I, I think that Gandhi, what he did in his lifetime and what other saints have done in their lifetimes, East and West, are real, that their energy is with us. What Einstein said, no energy is lost in the universe. Hildegard of said, no warmth is lost in the universe. And I say, no beauty is lost in the universe. I think we have to call on all the resources that we have and let me tell one quick story about, about uh, creativity. 
a year ago, just this time, I think it was, I was on an island with 150 scientists off of New Hampshire. They meet there every year. And the issue was global warming. And they asked me to come and talk about the Pope's encyclical on, on, on the environment. I was called to do that, but when I arrived, I felt despair was everywhere. And I, I was there for three days. I didn't have to talk to Wednesday. And so I got up to talk, and I said, I'm not going to talk about the Pope's encyclical. You can get that on my webpage. I'm going to talk about despair, because that's what's going on in this room. That's what's going on here. And it was very powerful being able to address despair instead of put it on a shelf or pretend it wasn't what really mattered. Let's talk about words instead. No, let's talk about despair and about what we can do about it. And the last day of the conference, it was about a six-day conference, two young scientists got up. One of them said, with our knowledge today, we could create a floating island off of New England, a thousand miles out there, so it's in no one's backyard, and it would be filled with uh, wind-generated generators, and we could provide all the electrical needs for North America. No coal, no gas, no oil needed. We could do that today in terms of our knowledge. Then another young scientist got up and said, if we can quadruple the power of batteries, and we've already doubled it, so really we only have to double it one more time. All the southern continents, and that's where most of the poor live, and that's where most of the sun is, could skip, skip over the Industrial Revolution and could run entirely on solar, if we could just double our capacity for batteries at this time. And that's kind of how the conference ended. It ended on a, on a high note of hope. Uh, but, but first, you, we have to deal with the, with the darkness. We have to deal with the despair and with the facts, but not too many of them. Because, I mean, too, too much despair overwhelms as, because we are a fragile species, just like you say. And our souls are fragile. I mean, we can talk this, these facts here, but then you go home to your kids, and they don't want to hear about your despair. But time is very short. And that's why the young and the old have to team up on this together. That's why I'm working with these young people to create an order of the sacred earth. And you can be an atheist, you can be from any religious tradition or none, but you take one vow. And the vow is, I promise to be the best lover of Mother Earth and the best defender of Mother Earth that I can be. Then you go back to your citizenship and your work and everything else. But we, we started this last solstice, but now our book is coming out publicly this month for the first time. And um, I think it has great potential because orders are so much more interesting than religions insofar as they, they're more flexible, they, they come at a certain time, they have a focus, and this is unlike any other order because it's definitely ecumenical, but it has a real focus, and that is the survival of the earth. One 26-year-old woman, she said to me, this is just what my generation needs. We're so dispersed by all this, this social media and everything. We need a focus. And why not make the survival of the planet our focus? So um, I think what we need today are movements like that, but also obviously movements when it comes to politics and economics and all the rest to change, change things. That's the future, I think, is movements that are going to put into action this new consciousness that we're that we're striving for and yearning for <clears throat> yeah royce grant you, you write about the the buddha way and you know yeah sentient i mean I, <clears throat> it does seem it does seem pretty clear that some new world is coming right uh and we'll make meaning in that world uh so long as we exist as a species in the complex uh, manifold, tenacious way that we've made meaning in countless other ways in the past. 
so that's definitely happening. Uh, but the question that sort of sits with me and that I can't stop thinking about, and there's a practical end to it, but the, the question itself is, is a philosophical or spiritual one, is, is why is why is that denial so frightening, right? Why are we so afraid of letting this go, right? This is all gonna change. That's manifest. And yet we cling to it desperately. We refuse to accept its passing. We refuse to accept that it's, it's all gonna go away. We can walk up to the precipice and think about it for a moment. And then we have to do something. If they get up, we have to, we have to go fix something. We have to coordinate. We got to do something. We got to do something. Because this is it really, it can't happen like that, right? We're not going out like that, right? We're, we're a better nation. We're a better civilization. We're a better species. We're, a better, we're better beings than that, right? We're not just going to let this happen to us. And then we go back, right? We go back right into the same things we were doing the day before, right? We have a feeling and then we react to it and we're stuck in this cycle of emotions and reactions, right? Because we keep denying denial. We keep saying, no, I'm not gonna think about what it would mean for all of this to go away. I'm not gonna think about what it would mean to my family or my friends or my city. I'm not gonna think, because it's scary, and it makes you sad, and there's no good answer. There's no good solution at the other side, right? This is all just possible, and in fact, inevitable, right? We're all, we're mortal beings, right? Loss is just a part of being human. And this is that dark night of the soul you were talking about, right? You go into that dark night of the soul, you recognize that this is impermanent, that the self is a construction, it's a fantasy, right? And that this world and this way of life is evanescent, right? We're a, we're a growth of carbon scum on a rock in the middle of space, right? Which is, it's beautiful what we've done, right? <laughs> uh, and there, in that space of negativity, right? in that meditation on, on the nothing, right? And on letting all this go, going through the process of, of willing to just let it all wash away. Then in that space, I think something new might emerge. That space is where new thoughts are possible, right? New visions of a future that aren't just reactions to another vision we don't like, right? I think going into the the hard, dark, difficult thing and staying there, right, as much as we can. It's the only way, I think, that we're gonna come up with some, something new, some new way, some better way to deal with the realities of the situation, right? To deal with what is going to be objectively a difficult time, right, for everybody. So I'm, I'm, I'm all for despair. <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's a good place to be. You're listening to a conversation about philosophy, spirituality, and climate consciousness. 
Coming up, looking for the silver lining. What an honor it is to be alive at this moment in history with this opportunity to shake our species up and to save the planet insofar as, as is possible. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about coming to terms with climate change and how living mindfully can help. His guests are authors Matthew Fox and Roy Scranton. Let's continue with their conversation. Matthew, we've talked a lot about meditation, and yet you said we're in a, in a hurry. So how do you meditate and slow down and be calm when you're in a hurry? Um, something's urgent, we have this goal, we gotta fix climate change or not fix it, not solve it, mm. just live with it. How do you do that? Mm. And it sounds counterintuitive to slow down when you gotta go faster. Mm. Well, I, I'd like to you know, build on what Roy said, you know, the, to experience the nothingness. Um, and it's not about uh, quantity. You know, it's not about being 24 hours with the nothingness. You know, it's just like a joy. You, you can experience transcendence in a very quick uh, moment. But it's about the depth that you yield to and that you go into. When you were speaking, I was thinking, Meister Eckhart has this phrase, he says, I once had a dream, even though I'm a man, I jumped I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. Pregnant with nothingness. And out of this nothingness, God was born. So there's great hope in that, in that darkness. And, you know, Father B. Griffith used to say that despair is a yoga. He said many people do not experience God or the transcendent or spirit until they go through despair. And think, for example, of many people in AA, for example. And, uh, you know, you talk to these people, and, and a lot of them, you know, had their first spiritual experience first by bottoming out and then um, going through a process of great emptying and, and, and despair. So um, despair, too, is, is folded into, into uh, our, our capacities, surely, for waking up. So I think today our spiritual practices have to be very portable. I don't think that we can afford, as I say, we, we shouldn't travel with basilicas on our back, but backpacks on our back. Um, I think we need to travel spiritually very light today. And whether you're an, a Buddhist or a Christian or a or Muslim, what have you, I think because there's so much work that has to be done. But the key is that the work come out of the, the unitive experience that we have in meditation. And it may be a unitive experience with the darkness and the pain and the suffering of the world um, and our over-attachment to things, but it may also be the intuition of the beauty and the grace of our species and of these other species and of the planet's continuous gift to us that we do not want to despoil and, and leave a, a wreck for future generations. So th- those, those play together, the via positiva, the via negativa, the cataphatic divinity, the god of light, and the apophatic, the god of darkness. You know, we, we have to live where we're embracing both. And, um, and, and darkness itself is not a negative thing. Uh, we learn a lot in the dark that you don't learn when the lights are on. And um, wonderful things happen in the dark, including children are conceived in the dark. 
So um, great things happen in the dark, so let's not put darkness down. And now, of course, science is coming on board saying, hey, by the way, 98% of the energy in the universe is dark matter. And um, so there's, a, there's this great uh, moment of archetypal awareness about the, the power of darkness today. The return of the Black Madonna as an archetype uh, is happening. And of course, she, they, she's Isis. She's the, the, the goddess, the, the mother uh, of us all, the, the, the goddess uh, in Africa. So um, th- these things we need to meditate on too and to explore and to let them talk to us. And even angels. Uh, uh, there's this woman I've met. Some of you may know her, um, Lorna Burns. She's a from the west coast of of Ireland. She's a peasant woman. From the time she was two, she was experiencing angels. It took her years to figure out everyone else wasn't doing the same thing. But one thing the angels told her uh, as an adult was they said that um, there's a lot of unemployed angels around. <laughs> and and I asked her, unemployed angels. I know a lot of unemployed people. This is about five years ago. Well, she said, God knows the trouble humans are in today and is pouring angels on the earth to help them. But no one's asking for help. No one's asking the angels for help. So, so before you go to bed at night, call on the angels. They love to get into your dreams. They, and that's what we need. We need new dreams and, and, and deeper ones. And, and to realize that we're in a world that is not just two-dimensional. There's a marvelous Navajo artist of David Paladin who, whose story is amazing. He was tortured in, the, in, in, in a concentration camp for four years in the Second World War. But I visited his wife after he died, and she told me nonchalantly, she said, well, she said, dead artists used to come regularly and, and dictate paintings to my husband. I said, really? And she left the room and she came back. She had this painting. And from across the room, I said to myself, oh, that's Paul Clay. And sure enough, Paul Clay had signed it. She said, I remember the night when Paul Clay came and visited my husband. Well, we live in a world of many dimensions. And TV doesn't tell us this, and our politicians don't tell us this, and most of our religions don't tell us this. But, you know, there's a lot going on. And the ancestors are, try- are knocking on our door and-, and trying to wake us up. So we need to call on them for help today. I want to land on a practical note. We've been talking a lot about meditation for people who are not sure how to begin. Quick tips. You know, I know this could be a whole lifelong thing, uh, but Royce Granton, tips for people who might want to start. You know, do you have, you have an app on your phone for five-minute meditation? Uh, you can use apps on your phone, although it's probably easier to start by putting your phone in another room. <laughs> um, yeah. Well said. Matthew, oh, any tips for getting um, into yeah. deepening meditation for people breathe. who... Yeah, breathe in, breathe out. You know, pay attention to your breath that we take for granted all the time. Uh, breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in the joy, breathe out, breathe out the pain. Breathe in the beauty, breathe out the ugliness. Just do that. Just get into the rhythm of your breath and learn not to take breath for granted. And the word for breath, of course, in languages all over the world, is the same as the word for spirit. So the thing is, breath is invisible, just like the wind is, but it doesn't mean there is no wind because you can't see it. Well, the same is true of breath, and the same is true of spirit. So that's a very simple meditation that is taught in some form or other all around the world, in, in all traditions. Just let's learn not to take our breath for granted. I bet these kids who face death for 14 year, days in complete darkness, 24 hours a day, I bet they're pretty excited about uh, having their breath full 
uh, coming back out of that cave. And uh, that's a lesson for all of us. That, uh, and I think Roy's lesson that you talked about as a, as, a, as a soldier, that you were facing death on a regular basis. And then you had this mystical experience of the beauty. Even in Iraq, there is the, the sun was shining and the beauty was there. And, and so we all go through experiences like this, but sometimes we don't um, appreciate uh, that they are our lessons uh, to take us to a deeper and deeper place. And uh, I know when I was 12, I had polio and I lost my legs. They couldn't tell me if I'd ever walk again. My father was a football coach in Wisconsin at one time, and I thought I was, like my older brothers, was going to play football and be an all-state football player or something, and here I couldn't walk. But when my legs did come back in a year, I remember saying to the universe, I'll never take my legs for granted again. And that, for me, was a very, looking back, was a mystical moment, not to take our breath for granted. And, um, and that's the bottom line here. Uh, that's what we're talking about when we talk about climate change and death and extinction of species, including our own. We're talking about how sacred is breath? How sacred is it? And uh, Buck Gostor said to me one day, you want to know how sacred water is? Go without it for three days. Well, try going without breath for three days, maybe three minutes, you know. Uh, that's how you learn important things in life. Eckhart says the, grow, the soul grows by subtraction, not by addition. So we're sitting in this context of the subtraction of everything. You've said it well. Everything we know could be subtracted from us. Is this a terrible place to be or is it really an interesting place to be? What an honor it is to be alive at this moment in history with this opportunity to shake our species up and to save the planet insofar as, as is possible. Greg. We've got to wrap it. Right, last thing. Last I'll word. take your question in earnest. Uh, it, for me, the point of meditation or meditation practice is that it's a, it's a physical training with a philosophical result or a spiritual result. Um, and, you know, the, the, idea, it's, the idea behind it is to disconnect us from these uh, emotional cycles of action and reaction, uh, desire and disappointment, uh, suffering and response, uh, and to open up a space of negation and reflection and interruption from the kinds of collective fears uh, and collective grievances and collective rages that are more and more powerful today because of technology, whatever, to take us out of that. It's a moment, it's opening up a moment and that you can do that if you haven't meditated for weeks, you can still open up a moment. You can do that on the train, you can do it you should probably not be walking, but you could. You could be just attentive and walking. You know, there's all kinds of moments for us to de-escalate our engagement with the stress cycles uh, in our lives and to open up space, open up space in ourselves for new, new possibilities. Greg Dalton has been talking about the connection between climate change, spirituality, and the human condition. His guests were Roy Scranton, author of several books, including his latest, We're Doomed, Now What?, and Matthew Fox, activist, theologian, and co-author of Order of the Sacred Earth, an intergenerational vision of love and action. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more.
And join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirshner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.